Amos chapter 4 is where we find ourselves this morning. Famous Amos. Hmm? Okay, I'll think about it. Amos chapter 4. <laughs> through, through the prophet, God continues to list his charges against the nation of Israel here in chapter 4. We saw last week that our God is a God of love and tenderness. Uh, he is a God who cares very deeply for his people. And despite the anger that he feels towards sin... Uh, the Lord does not delight in bringing judgment on sinners. So uh, it's something He does in His justice and in His wrath against sin and in His purity. But we saw last week how tender and loving God really is. Now sadly, His own people, knowing who He is and, and how He loves, still find themselves sinning from time to time. And in the case of the nation of Israel, they had fully moved out of their relationship with the Lord and into idolatry and the wickedness that flows from it. And so the message continues there, starting in verse 1. It says, Hear this, you cows of Bashan, you uh, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. Say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness. Behold, the day shall come upon you when He will take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. You will go out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into Harmon, says the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the free will offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. Also, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when there were still three months to the harvest. I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord." I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees, the locusts devoured them. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I have killed with a sword, along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is, and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. Um, admittedly, the prophetic books of the Old Testament are not where most of us spend the bulk of our devotional uh, life. We read a passage like this, or at least I do, and, and it can be hard to get into a teachable position since we're not Jewish and, and we're not Baal worshippers. I don't think any of us set up an Ashtoreth pole before we left the house you know, this morning. I, I hope not. If you did, you should probably hang out and talk to us afterwards. But you know, throughout these books... 
uh, here in the prophetic section, there's often talk about the different sacrifices or, or different historical events or things that we don't necessarily have a personal or a cultural connection to like we would if we were you know, actually Jewish. But we do have to step back and realize that this is God's word and he's recorded this message for us so that we might learn and be warned as well. You know, there were all sorts of prophets. Uh, you read in, you know, the book of Kings or Chronicles, and you see that there were, I mean, there were schools of the prophets. At one point, you know, uh, when Elijah and Elisha, towards the end of their time together, a bunch of the prophets from the school of the prophets were just kind of following them around. And so, you know, there were, you know, all sorts of prophets, and they had all sorts of messages. And God spoke often to his people, but there's something about Amos that God wants to be sure that we get, that he wants us to understand even these many thousands of years later. Uh, and I think there's a little clue to that idea in the closing verses of the chapter as the Lord describes himself. Let's just look quickly at verse 12 and 13 again. It says, Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel, for behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind who declares to man what his thought is and makes the morning darkness, uh, who treads the high places of the earth, Lord God of hosts <coughs> is his name. And so God there explains, he, he's talking about his eternal power. He, he, he explains that man is going to stand before him one day, and he explains that he's not just dealing you know, with an isolated situation. He's talking about you know, the thoughts of man. I know what the thoughts of man are, and I'm going to explain that to you. And He's talking about the practice of humankind when we're not living a life that pursues relationship with the Creator. And so the message of God regarding sin and regarding His plan and regarding His heart for the earth here in Amos, it certainly transcends more than just this one generation or this one culture. And it's uh, certainly applicable to us as well as it was to the individual Israelites uh, there in Amos time, 750 B.C. or so. Now, over and over again in this passage, we see this phrase, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. And so we know that this is a passage about repentance. Obviously, the entire book is a call um, for the people to repent. But really, this chapter especially is, is a passage about repentance. And then there at the end, the Lord says to them outright, hey, get ready to meet your maker. Get ready to meet with me. You need to prepare yourself uh, to stand before me. And what we see is that God is going to bring men and women, bring his people, bring all the people of the earth to himself at the end of their lives. And um, he's, he, he, we're going to stand before and meet with our creator at some point. Yeah, that's a moment in time that God can see right now. He can, you know, uh, he's outside of time and he can see that moment approaching for us. And he encourages us, he encourages his people to be prepared, be ready. And above all things, the Jews were not ready to stand before God in that moment. That's why he's sending a prophet to them, to warn them of the inevitable fact that one day we are going to stand before God to give an account, and this life here on the earth is given for, to us to prepare for that moment. And really, even if you haven't read Amos before, all of these ideas aren't anything new. These are ideas that are presented to us again and again in the Bible. Jesus talked about these sorts of things frequently in parables about the moment of Christ's return for us and, and that time when we will be before uh, the Master to account for what has happened during our lives on the earth. You know, he says, hey, 
man, the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. You know, keep your wicks trimmed, keep oil in your lamps, keep ready. When the master returns and, and comes to the servants, they're going to have to give an accounting for what they've been doing. And so these warnings that we see given to God's people in Amos have value for us today because they're repeated for us and uh, they're common to us uh, also in the New Testament. So let's look at what God had to say to these people here in this specific passage who had been called by his name. Uh, again, verse 1, it says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, you who are on the mountain of Samaria. It's interesting to me that the Lord identifies them as cows. Now, this passage has some interesting strong language, has some sanctified sarcasm, as we call it. I mean, the Lord there at the first half of the chapter is, is really sarcastic. He says, yeah, why don't you come? Why don't you bring some more of your leavened uh, thing, offerings? Why don't you come and, and uh, offer more pagan offerings on the you know weirdo alt- altars at Bethel that you've built? And so he, he's speaking pretty candidly and, and pretty strongly to them. But it's interesting to me that God calls them cows here. You know, the Lord gives us analogies so that we can understand him and understand you know, what he has said. And when talking about our relationship with him, he uses a specific animal to represent his people most often. Uh, there are a lot of different analogies, obviously, but the most famous animal that we are compared to is not the cow, but the sheep. Psalm 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 103, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. But in God's eyes here, the people of Samaria, he said, you guys are cows, you guys aren't sheep. And it's sort of interesting to just think about that and chew on it a little bit. You know, cows and sheep on, on one hand are pretty similar. Uh, both are livestock. Both give milk. Sheep give wool for clothing. Cows give leather. On some level, you know, if you were listing similarities out, you, you, you could say, hey, these animals are pretty similar. But if you had a cow and a sheep in front of you and you inspected them, you would learn very quickly that they are completely different. They're completely different animals. And God came to his people and he says, listen, I want you to be my sheep and I want to be your shepherd. But what we're seeing in Amos so far is that the people of God had slowly changed course. They were heading in this different direction that we talked about last week. And and they weren't in agreement with the Lord anymore. And they were becoming something else other than what he had intended. And from God's perspective, as he looked down on them, they weren't even recognizable as his sheep anymore. They were cattle. They had become cows, a completely different animal. Verse 1 continues, it says, You who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. A major, major theme in Amos and the other prophetic books, and really the whole Bible as we look for it, is the fact that God judges those who mistreat the poor. That's the deal. And uh, this is something that we have to pay attention to. We may have opinions about poor people, We may have anger over the problems in the social welfare systems that we see in our own society or in our own culture. But the bottom line for the Christian is this. God is on the side of the poor. That's the deal. Uh, God takes up the cause of the poor. And it is unacceptable to the Lord when his people mistreat or ignore the poor. Now here's another sobering fact, uh, one that I think is important for us to remember Using data from the World Bank and other global population data, uh, it it is calculated that if you make $25,000 a year, you are richer than 90% of the 7 billion people that live on on the earth today. 
if you make $50,000 a year, you are richer than 99% of the people that are alive on the earth today. Talk about the 99% and the 1%, you know, I mean, we're all the 1%, you know, uh, we're all the 10%, or we're all certainly uh, uh, in a very, very small category. That's just the deal. We find ourselves in a very blessed, very affluent situation in this culture, and of course everything is relative, and not every person that makes a dollar less than me is impoverished, I understand that, but we have to start taking hold of the idea that God cares very deeply about how I assist the poor. He, he looked at the Israelites and he said, listen, you guys, you crush the needy, you are oppressing the poor, you are taking advantage of them, you're ignoring them, and that is sin, and I'm going to judge it. And he put that sin right up against the way that they offered their children to Molech, burning their children on the arms of that altar. Now, listen to these verses directed at us. This wasn't just an Israelite issue. James 1.27, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Or how about Jesus in Matthew 25? Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was sick in prison, you didn't visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison, and we didn't minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And so we have a responsibility to the poor and needy as far as God is concerned. Uh, and this is an issue that is very, very serious to the Lord. It was an issue that was bringing national judgment onto the children of Israel alongside their idolatry, alongside their sexual immorality, alongside their paganism. Now we see something else in these verses and in the passage that we've already read, uh, passages we've already read in Amos. Uh, it's interesting, you see there at the very end of verse 1, you know, wine was flowing, winter and summer houses were built, being built. We saw that last week. The Israelites were living the good life. They were living large. As we study the history of the nation of Israel or the lives of individuals within the Bible like Saul or Solomon or some of these other folks, we find that oftentimes the good life uh, great affluent blessing opens the door to less godliness rather than more. There's nothing wrong with being blessed by God, not at all, even materially. The Lord certainly doesn't promise material blessing to all of us, uh, but we know that He does allow uh, that sort of physical affluence in the lives of His people from time to time. You know, Abraham, Lot, uh, Job, Solomon. But what we find is that physical affluence often leads to excess in life. That's the pattern that we see again and again and again in the biblical text. It can lead to spiritual relaxation because if we're not careful, more of our focus gets put on the enjoyment of temporal things rather than the investment of eternal things. That is the danger of wealth. What, the Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says, hey, listen, the love of money is the root of all evil. And uh, that's why wealth and physical affluence and, and those sorts of things are very dangerous to the believer. Uh, the more we focus on temporal things, the less fortified we're going to be in our spiritual lives and the less invested in eternity 
we're going to be. And we need fortification. We, we just, we need it. God says to us plainly in the scriptures, listen, there are adversaries out there who are seeking to destroy you. There's a sin nature, I've crucified it, but it's lurking around in your heart and it's seeking to destroy you. It wants to get a foothold in your life so that it can bring you down. On top of all of that, you're in a dark world and, and God has sent you into enemy territory, as it were, to extract prisoners that are, are, are there that the Lord wants to save. Uh, temporality, this life on the earth, is given to us for preparation. It's given to us for building and for service and for enduring. It's not given to us for luxury or inactivity. The life we've, we've received comes with purpose and assignment. Now, there's joy in the Christian life. There's rest. God gives rest to his people. There's blessing. We're not all called to be ascetics at all. That's not in the Bible. Uh, but the world we find ourselves in is filled with prisoners of war. Now, the war is won, but we've been sent to rescue, not retire. Now, retirement's coming. Really, really great retirement is coming as far as the spiritual life is concerned. Eternal luxury is being prepared for us, and I'm excited for that. But this life right now is not meant to be a life of spiritual retirement. I'm not talking about physical retirement. I'm talking about spiritual retirement. And, and, and right now, the life that we've been given is meant to be the life of a builder and a fighter and a runner, not a lounger. And so, so often, God warns his people to make sure we're keeping our heads in the game. Because he's really serious about this life. That's why he's left you here. That's why even though he has redeemed you and blood-bought you and transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, he leaves you here on the earth for a time so that the things he wants to accomplish can be done. He's serious about building his church and building his kingdom, and he wants his people to be prepared to have our heads in the game. I remember once uh, when I was a freshman in high school, I was on the basketball team. All my friends were basketball players, and so, you know, I wanted to be a basketball player as well. And I was just terrible. I mean, really, really terrible. I worked hard. I practiced hard. But I just, I'm, I'm not athletic. I'm, I'm, I'm really, really bad, especially at basketball. I didn't get hardly any playing time. Uh, and one game in particular, you know, I, I finally got put in towards the end. I don't remember if we were losing by a huge amount or winning by a huge amount. But... <laughs> It was rare. I got put in. And as soon as I got buzzed in there, you know, they, they passed the ball in and they passed me the ball in. Man, I had a clear route to the hoop and I, you know, ran in and I put my layup in and it was the wrong basket. I, I, was, in, I was in the opposite basket. And, you know, I understood that you can't keep players like me in the game. <laughs> I thought, I kind of just went over to the bench and I was like, so you're going to sub me out, right? You know? <laughs> But and we understand that. We certainly understand it on sports. And when we're watching sports on television, we think, yeah, you, you got to get that guy out of there. That pitcher, you got to relieve that guy. You need to get that guy out of here because he's losing this game for the team. It, it, but when we're talking about people's lives and people's eternal destinations, we as the people who are in the game, who are in the race, who are doing the building, we need to be dedicated about doing what we're supposed to be doing, keeping our heads in the game, living godly, making disciples, tending to the poor and the oppressed. God is serious about this work he's given us. And what happens is that whether it's true, excuse me, whether it's us or whether it's the Jews or whoever else, there are eternal moments that present themselves to God's people. 
you know, during the regular course of life, moments when we're presented with some choice where one direction is in agreement with God and it's going to lead to the path that God has put us on and the other decision leads away from God, away from eternity. It's why so often we're given that idea, choose this day whom you will serve. And what we're seeing in Amos is that when God's people choose the sinful path or the path that's off the mark that God has given us, when we choose to walk away from the direction that God is going, we're putting ourselves on a track that leads outside of God's desire, outside of God's provision, outside of God's protection. We're like that prodigal who runs away from home. And God does a lot to warn us when we're headed that way. He puts up many, many bridge out signs for us to pay attention to. But the only way for us to get off that track is when we repent. That's the only way to get off that track. Repentance, turning around, returning to God and getting back on the direction he wants us. And repentance is a fruit that we have to bring forth. You know, God brings forth a lot of fruit in our lives. He says, man, I'm going to give you the fruit of the Spirit, and the Spirit within you is going to produce fruit. But the fruit of repentance is in our hands. That's something that we bring about. And here's the thing. The Israelites seemed spiritual. You look at these, you know, northern kingdom Israelites. They did all sorts of religious things. They had their religious culture. They had their rituals. They had all of that. They seemed successful. They were eating good. They were building summer houses and winter houses. They were living large. But all along the way, God was trying to get their attention. He's saying, hey, remember me. Remember what I've actually said. You're not on the right track. You're moving away from the direction I want you to go. And you look at verses 6 through 11 there, and you see that God did so much to try to get their attention. He presented himself to them through their weather and through their crops and through their families and through their military engagements and through their politics and through their health and even their very senses. He talks about their sense of smell there. But the people were obsessed with wealth, they were obsessed with luxury, and they weren't ready, and they weren't prepared, and they ignored all of those ways that God was trying to speak to them. And finally, at this point, God comes to them and he sends the prophet, and he says, hey, you guys are going over the ledge, so now you really need to prepare yourself because you've gone off the bridge that I told you was out. Now listen, God doesn't want to mourn over us. The next chapter is going to be a lament for Israel where God's heart breaks over what is going to happen to Israel and what has happened to Israel. God doesn't want to lament over our lives. He wants to rejoice over us. He wants to sing over us. What we can do is prepare ourselves to stay close to God, focused on God, who wants to accomplish all these great things through our lives. But we need to be ready for those eternal moments where God brings us a chance to invest in eternity, to reach out and rescue, to fulfill the purpose he's given us. That's the deal. Staying close to God and in pursuit of him uh, and listening for those warnings that he brings us. And when God sends us a warning, when God sends us a sign that says, man, you are off course right now, we need to just stop. If we're sinning in lust or in greed or in bitterness or in worry or anger or some other kind of idolatry or something else that the Lord has warned us about in his word, we just need to stop and, and, and turn around and get into agreement with the Lord so that we can get back to the work that God does best, being fruitful, being used, being in relationship, not going over that ledge. And so we need to prep. We're, we're going to meet with our God today one way or another. Maybe in death, maybe in the rapture, maybe in just a divine appointment where God brings eternity to you and says, hey, this is an opportunity for you to build something in the kingdom. But one way or another, God will be before us. He is shepherding us, and we can be the sheep of his hand. Amen. Have a great day.